All right, so we are going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Mark, and our text for this morning is Mark 22. I'm sorry, Mark 22. There aren't 22 chapters in Mark. Um, Mark 8, 22 to 38. So the rest of chapter 8 we're going to cover this morning. So while you're turning there, um, has anyone heard of David Blaine? Anybody know who he is? Okay, wow. Maybe more than I expected. All right, so he's an illusionist, a magician. He's also done a bunch of crazy other things. Um, I think he holds a Guinness Book of World Records record or two. Um, One time he held his breath underwater for 17 minutes and four seconds. Um, Yeah, that was a record until somebody else broke it by a few seconds. But anyway, when he was four, he saw a magician performing magic on the subway, and it captivated him. He was born in Brooklyn, raised by his mother, single mom. Um, His mother was his life. She cared for him really well. Um, He, when he speaks of her, you know, he speaks with such um, appreciation and love. Um, So he was asked in an interview, I heard an interview of him once, um, how his mother affects how he lives today. And he answered, she was so brave. She got sick when I was a teenager and fought cancer. She fought without a complaint. She was very tough. The way she approached suffering and death, she was so graceful about it that I was curious. The suffering that she endured and how she found so much beauty out of it, I think that sort of planted the seed to what is there on the other side of enduring things. And part of his... Acts has been some of the, the kind of crazy acts that he's performed over the years is just crazy feats of endurance. Okay, so you can see the genesis of some of that in his mother's suffering. So the interviewer then went on to say, you were with her when she died. And he said, she died in my arms. I remember that my body was like one big twig that snapped. And I became really afraid to connect like that to anyone else like he had been connected to his mom. Then he said, I think at that point, that's when I became fearless because I felt like I had nothing to lose. Then he tells a story of when he was 19 or 20, he was at an airport, his bag was missing. He saw a whole bunch of identical bags coming out and there were these guys all dressed alike in these like jumpsuits and and he's like, comes up to these guys, he's like, hey, I think you guys have one of my bags because I have the exact same bag. And the guys, you know, kind of bristled a little bit at him. And, you know, they said, go ask him. Knock on the window. Pointed at this limo, this white limo. And, you know, tinted windows. And he knocks on the window. And the window rolls down. And Mike Tyson's there with his fist up. Like, you got a problem? Or it would have been something like, you got a problem? (laughs) Um, And so David Blaine was like, no, Mike, you're like one of my favorite people. And I grew up, you know, watching you, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And so Mike Tyson says, jump in. And he jumps in the limo, and they're driving to his hotel, and he's doing magic for Mike Tyson, and they have this great time. And along the way, Mike Tyson said to David Blaine, so, you know, I wasn't supposed to be the heavyweight champ. No, I'll stop. Anyway, um, I wasn't tall enough, and I didn't have long arms, but I had nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose... You have everything to gain. Nothing to lose, everything to gain, and that changes everything about how you live. 
sets you up to live fearlessly. So there's some meaningful parallel between that story and our passage that we're going to consider this morning. We'll circle back to that at the end. So if you're not there, again, Mark 8, beginning in verse 22, the structure, if you haven't been here in past weeks, the structure of the gospel according to Mark at the biggest picture level is that it breaks down into two parts, okay, or two acts, act one, act two. And we are at the end of act one. This is the conclusion of the first part, this section at the end of Mark 8. And then 9 to 16 is act two. So this is like the pivot point upon which the book turns. And you remember, this, the series is called King and Cross, right? Identity and mission is central in the book. Who is this? And why did Jesus come? So mostly in the first half, you have who is this? The identity stuff is, is central. So all the identity stuff is now leading to this moment that we're going to be considering this morning. And now the focus is going to be on the mission, the cross. The way to the cross and the clarification of the mission is going to really follow heavy on this passage as we head into the second part of the book. This is kind of like the headwaters of the second part of the book. So our text, 8, 22 to 38, but we're actually going to start in verse 27, okay? So point number one is verses 27 to 33, confession and rebuke, all right? So let's start in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So by responding that way, he's affirming what Peter said, that he's the Christ. But he's saying, okay, I don't want you to go around telling everyone that that's the case. And why is that? Well, we'll see in due course here. So Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Okay? So we need to understand what Peter is is most likely thinking here when he says this. The term Christ simply means anointed one, okay? So in the Old Testament, there were three groups of people that were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings, okay? But notice Peter doesn't say, you are a Christ, you are a anointed one or an anointed one. He says you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. So common among Jews at the time <coughs> was an expectation of a coming Messiah. And this Messiah would be the king, the king to end all kings, the one who would set everything to rights, who would finally decisively deal with evil and usher in God's kingdom of righteousness and peace that would have no end. Certainly their expectation was that this would be a human king, but a special king you know, the likes of which no one had ever seen. So this expectation grew out of, this hope for this messianic king grew out of texts like 2 Samuel 7, okay? You can follow along here 
take you probably too long to go find it. But when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. This is spoken to King David. Um, And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a to him a father and he shall be to me a son my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from you is this going to be Solomon is that who he's talking about <clears throat> well initial fulfillment would be Solomon but and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever another passage Jeremiah 23 5 and there are others but for the sake of time, we'll just hit a couple here. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Speaking of a king, King David, righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So, Obviously, we know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these passages. He is the Messiah. That is his identity. But his mission was very different from what the Jews expected, what Peter expected, and what he thought and meant when he said, you're the Messiah. So Jesus has to teach them about the mission. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, so the Christ and the Son of Man are the same person. Son of Man would have like, bing, 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 Daniel 7. This kind of shadowy figure that comes and receives incredible authority from the Ancient of Days. Like this is, again, the King of Kings. So he began to teach them that the Son of Man must Peter would have expected, the disciples would have expected, rule and reign, subdue all the enemies. But instead, it's must suffer many things, which pulls in Isaiah 53. Must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Remember the stone that the builders rejected? And must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this, Plainly, So sometimes he spoke in, <coughs> in parables and, and the disciples obviously misunderstood many times. But here he's speaking plainly, not in veiled speech, not in parables. He's not using cryptic language. He's not using figures of speech. He's saying this openly to them and the disciples can't help but understand what he's saying, but they don't have a category for this. No category for Messiah who would suffer and be killed. He shouldn't be rejected by the religious leaders. He should rally the religious leaders. He should conquer and defeat evil, especially the Gentile Roman oppressors. He should be victorious over the enemies of the Jews. So Peter, let me try that again. So Peter, speaking for the group, decides to like set Jesus straight. Again, end of verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, there's misunderstanding right there, not knowing who you're talking about if you pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, 
for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Which, by the way, John Mark was not an apostle, right? Who is his source? We covered this the first week. Anybody remember? Who is his source for apostolic witness, firsthand apostolic witness of, you know, being with Jesus to write his account? Peter. Isn't that interesting? He's not seeking to save face and make himself look good. He's telling it like it was. So Peter's confession was correct. The word was correct. Yes, this, this is the Messiah. Right title, but completely wrong idea of what that meant. The must. Do you see it there in verse 31? It's so key in understanding what's going on here. The Son of Man must. This is divine necessity. The Messiah has to die. This is central to everything. This is central to the mission. There's no other way that evil and sin can fully and finally be dealt with than this way. No other way that all things can be made new. No other way the Messiah can set things right without suffering and dying and rising again. There's no way the Messiah can renew us, set us right with God, and then renew all things apart from this way to suffer and die and rise. So Jesus responds to the rebuke of Peter with a very strong counter rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. So does that mean that like Satan was, or that Peter was just, you know, suddenly possessed by Satan? No. Peter is echoing the values and strategy of Satan. You remember the temptation in the wilderness? Satan offered to Jesus the crown without the cross. You remember? Matthew 4. The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. He's the God of this world. Right? Because of the rebellion, the insurrection of the fall, Satan is the God of this world. Like it says in Ephesians 2. Um, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. It's the same word. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So restoring the world, just think about this for a minute. Restoring the world by force, which is what the disciples Jews expected. Dealing with evil and sin by force is in line with the things of man. Not to mention the fact that it wouldn't have worked because it only would have been a superficial fix because there's evil in every human heart. The only way to change that, changes from the inside out, is suffering and death in our place for our sins on the cross, rising again victorious after paying the debt that we owe. So the things of God, not the things of man, were to follow a completely different plan and path. So Peter's confession was true. You're the Christ, yes, but his understanding of what that meant was completely false. So in one sense, Peter could see, 
right? You're the Christ. You're right, Peter. In fact, in Matthew's account, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father. So he's right. Like he could see. That's amazing. He knew he was the Messiah. But in another sense, everything was at best blurry and unclear to Peter and the disciples, right? So let's now back up and look at verses 22 to 26. Second point, visual parable. <clears throat> and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, to Jesus, a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking, which is an indication that he wasn't blind from birth. Otherwise, he wouldn't have known what a tree was, I don't think, in that short amount of time. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Okay, so what's up with this two-step healing? There's like no precedent for a partial healing anywhere else in the Gospels. Why did Jesus heal him this way here? Was this just like a really hard case and it took Jesus two tries? No. Well, if we look carefully, we'll see some clues as to the meaning of the healing. I've already kind of tipped my hand. Maybe you've seen it. Sorry, no pun intended. The healing is a living parable of what's happening with the disciples. Remember last week, chapter 8, verses 17 to 21, Jesus has some strong words for the disciples because of how they just are not getting it. And he says, do you not yet perceive or understand or your heart's hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And remember, previously at the end of chapter 7, he had healed a deaf man. And now he's healing a blind man. So do you see? You have the healing of a deaf man. Having ears, do you not hear? Now he heals a blind man. Having eyes, do you not see? Well, do they see? Yes and no. Peter's right. Divine illumination. You're the Christ. But his sight, their sight is still blurry. It's far from clear because he rebukes Jesus when Jesus says he must suffer and die. So more work is needed to enable the disciples to see clearly. So this is a living parable, living illustration of what Jesus will do. The disciples have only begun to see, but only dimly. They need to fully understand Jesus' mission, the cross, his suffering if they're going to see clearly. And that will eventually come, but only after the resurrection, right? So in order to help them see clearly who he is, why he came, he explains the necessity of his suffering. Verse 31, we looked at that. And then he explains the implications for discipleship. This actually happens repeatedly in Mark. Um, he's going to predict his suffering, and then he's going to teach about discipleship. Two more times after this, which if you think about it, do you remember how, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but in chapters 9 and 10, do you remember how, it's, it's in chapter 10, I think, um, 
disciples wanted to sit on Jesus' right and left hand. See, they think he's going to throw down Roman oppression and like ascend to power and they want to be in his cabinet. See, they, they don't get it. So he has to teach them that he's going to suffer and die and then that has implications for how they follow him. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he says to the disciples, it shall not be, you know how the Gentiles lord it over? Those who have authority lord it over others? It shall not be so among you. Whoever, you know, wants to follow me must be a servant. So you see, there's discipleship implications for the person, like who Jesus is and why he came and how he goes about fulfilling his mission. So, um, point number three, divine and human necessity. So the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, be killed, and rise again after three days. That must is essential for understanding Jesus' mission. It's not about fighting fire with fire. It's not about power overcoming power, just raw power. It's actually, paradoxically, power through weakness. Jesus had to become a curse for us in order to save us from the curse of sin. So power through weakness. Jesus had to be forsaken on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might never be forsaken. That's the paradox of the cross. And it's also the paradox of the Christian life. Jesus was victorious by being conquered. In a sense, through losing, he won. So the power of the gospel came through the weakness of the cross. And that has bearing implications for what it means if you're going to follow this Messiah. When you understand why he came, you see that it has implications for all who want to follow him. So he says in verse 34, after he's revealed the fact that he's going to suffer be rejected, die, and rise again. Now you need to know that that has implications for you. Verse 34, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, that's a desire verb, okay? You could translate it as, if anyone desires, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, same word, desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Can you hear some echoes of Psalm 49 that Olivia read? Olivia Duffus? Sorry, just... Um, so... For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, this is either thy will be done, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, or my will be done. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. So new information for the disciples, totally contrary to all their expectations. 
that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. It has implications then for anyone who wishes to be a disciple of Jesus. So following Jesus is not some, you know, triumphalistic thing behind this political military leader who's going to crush the Romans and set the Jews free from their oppression. It's losing your life, following this suffering servant savior on the Calvary Road. So what we're going to do now is try to tease out what does this mean for us, like in five different ways. But let me just tell you, this passage is so rich and worthy of meditation. Can I just encourage you to meditate and ponder this text and return to it regularly like for the rest of your life? It's so significant, so important. There's so much here, so many implications, so many applications. We can't even begin to exhaust them. So we'll tease this out in five different ways under five different headings here for our last point, which is what does this mean for us? Okay? So first off, just note the honesty and the forthrightness of Jesus here. You can trust him. He is not trying to pull a fast one on us. He doesn't put anything in the fine print. Disciples, you believe me to be the Messiah. As such, you want to follow me. Okay. But you need to know who I am and what it means to follow me, what it will cost. If you want this, if you want to be a citizen of my kingdom, then you must deny yourself and die. It's the only thing you do on a cross. I'm telling you right up front what you're getting into. So I love this comment by Matthew Henry. He offers this insight and kind of contrasts Jesus with the devil. When the devil is drawing away disciples and servants after him, he conceals the worst of it. Right? Doesn't he always cover the hook of his intention with bait? He wants to hide his intention. It's a murderous intention. When the devil is drawing away disciples and servants after him, he conceals the worst of it, tells them only of the pleasure, but nothing of the peril of his service, like he did in the garden. You, you, you won't surely die. But what there is of trouble and danger in the service of Christ, he tells us of it before, tells us what we, sh we shall suffer. Perhaps we shall die in the cause. He deals fairly with us and is not afraid that we should know the worst because the advantages of this service abundantly suffice to balance the discouragements if we will but impartially set the one over against the other. So just like stop and see that Jesus is dealing honest with us and he, he doesn't have to hide anything in the fine print. So that's the first thing to note, okay? Secondly, we need to make sure we know what it means, actually, right, to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Sometimes people use language like, oh, it's my cross to bear. And they're talking about their, you know, some physical malady or a relationship that's really troublesome or whatever. Um, those things are important, but that's not what taking up your cross is all about. So what does it mean? Deny yourself. 
take up your cross and follow me. What, what does that mean? Is it the death of who I am? Is that the death of my personality? Is it the death of all my joy and fulfillment and satisfaction? No, 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 no. At the heart of it is the issue of allegiance and fidelity. Right? Fidelity always entails forsaking. Or you could say living for someone in covenantal faithfulness always means dying to whatever, whoever would compromise that fidelity. Okay, so Bill and Naomi got married a week ago yesterday. Congratulations. Good to have you guys back. <clears throat> when Paul Shirley was doing the vows, he said, Bill, you know, and he's going through the vows. He said, forsaking all other women, Bill is pledging fidelity to Naomi and vice versa, right? So that's what we're doing in following Jesus and aligning with his gospel, right? Me and my words. He is Lord we will have no other gods before him, besides him. It's a shift of the center of gravity from self to Christ. It's wholehearted allegiance, forsaking all other lords, masters, gods. And it's also saying, I'm not going to be Lord. My self, my, especially my sinful fallen self, is not going to be at the center. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> so Peter, he had his agenda for what the Messiah would do. And it was victory and going from strength to strength. But that was human thinking. Jesus was not a means to Peter's and the other Jews' end of like political freedom, right? <clears throat> He's not. He's not going to be a means. He won't be a means. He's not a tool to our agenda because we're not on the throne. He is Lord. So determination of what is good, what is best for Peter, for the disciples, for all the Jews, for all of us, that's not theirs. That's not ours to determine. That determination belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus, our master and Lord. Which means that following Jesus is like the undoing of the dynamics of the fall. Adam and Eve thought they could determine better than God, like buying the lies of Satan. They figured they could determine better than God what was best for them. I mean, look at this fruit. It's desirable. It can make us wise, you know, knowing good and evil. Self-determination of what's best for us is what broke and ruined the world. We need to trust Jesus to know what's best and follow him no matter the cost. And that means dying, denying ourselves that right. It's not ours to have. So Thomas Watson, just a couple quick quotes here. Thomas Watson said once, unless we deny our own will, we shall never do God's will. Or oddly enough, if any of you have ever read Moby Dick by Hel Herman Melville, some really insightful stuff in there, including a sermon on Jonah that's really powerful. Um, at, one, at one point, he writes, and if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. 
So the claim is total. The allegiance is exclusive. No compartmentalization. You know, Jesus, you can have, you know, these three things, and then I, I got the rest of this. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Follow me. He is the Lord. So we can't secure or save our lives by denying Jesus, the Lord. We only preserve our lives by losing our lives. So the paradox, right? Just like power through weakness, save your, saving us by dying, our lives are only preserved by dying, okay? So this is um, desire to follow Jesus no matter the cost, full surrender. And if you're gonna surrender yourself, then you actually need to know yourself, right? So your heart your loves, your motives, any idols, things that you would tend to put. God substitutes competition for his first place in our hearts. We know ourselves so that we can welcome his lordship into every compartment, every nook and cranny of our lives. So no ride in the fence. It's really all or nothing. Jesus is not a garnish. No token, no nominal Christianity. Total allegiance in every area of life. Like that's what Jesus is calling us to here. So C.S. Lewis has this kind of lesser known um, but really, really insightful. I've got a couple of longer quotes here. I think you'll see that they're worthwhile. Um, but there's this essay called Three Kinds of Men. Okay, so it'll be up here. You can follow along on the screen. And, and also these will eventually be online if you want any of these quotes, you can find them, um, the PDF that'll be matched with the sermon online on the website. So he writes this, there are three kinds of people in the world. The first class is of those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure, regarding man and nature as so much raw material to be cut up into whatever shape may serve them. In the second class are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them the will of God, the categorical imperative, or the good of society, and honestly try to pursue their own interests no further than this claim will allow. They try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided, like a soldier's or a schoolboy's life, into time on duty and off duty, in school, out of school. But the third class is of those who can say, like St. Paul, that for them to live is Christ. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. Denying yourself, taking up a cross, and following Jesus. The old egoistic will has been turned round, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs. Like a taxpayer, ooh, I dread rising the tax. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs. It is theirs. All their time in belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. And because there are three classes, any merely twofold division of the world into good and bad is disastrous. It overlooks the fact that the members of the second class are always and necessarily unhappy. 
kind of like the older brother in Luke 15. The tax which moral conscience levies on our desires does not, in fact, leave us enough to live on. As long as we are in this class, we must either feel guilt because we have not paid the tax or, sorry, he uses a word that nobody knows what it means, so I'm just putting a substitute in here. That's what that, anyway, okay. Uh, some of you might know what penury is, but it's a cramping lack of resources. Um, so as long as we are in this class, we must either feel guilt because we have not paid the tax, I should be doing better, or a cramping lack of resources because we have. The Christian doctrine that there is no salvation by works done to the moral law is a fact of daily experience. Back or on we must go, but there is no going on simply by our own efforts. If the new self, the new will, does not come at his own good pleasure to be born in us, we cannot produce him synthetically. Just works righteousness. The price of Christ is something, in a way, much easier than moral effort. It is to want him. New desires. It is true that the wanting itself would be beyond our power, but for one fact, the world is so built <laughs> that to help us desert our own satisfactions, they desert us. Sometimes we begrudge the things that are actually leading us to the only sure satisfaction, the only sure foundation. When the carpet gets pulled out, we can begrudge it, but it's actually intending that we be planted firmly on the solid rock. So the world is so built that to help help us desert our own satisfaction, they desert us. War and trouble and finally old age take from us one by one all those things that the natural self hoped for at its setting out. Begging is our only wisdom and want in the end makes it easier for us to be beggars. Even on those terms, the mercy will receive us. So listen, some of this is heavy, it's hard. This is a serious call from Jesus. But also realize the disciples didn't get it. They didn't get it again in chapter 9. They didn't get it again in chapter 10. They didn't get it again when Jesus is carted away, arrested, and killed. They're scattering. He's so merciful with quick-to-wander, slow-to-learn disciples who really do want to trust him and yield everything, but it doesn't happen overnight. And we do this all the time, right? So, third thing that we should notice here. We are constantly involved in cost-benefit analyses. And this is the ultimate one. Okay? You guys all know what cost-benefit analysis are, analyses are. If you have any kind of business, business involvement, you know there are formal cost-benefit analyses that go on all, all the time. But we do this, you know, all the time in all kinds of different areas of life. I mean, certainly investing, certainly in starting a business. You know, is it worth it? You know, return on investment, you know, with housing improvements or whatever. <clears throat> Working out. If you're going to stick with your workout plan, cost benefit. I don't want to go to the gym today. If you're going to get the salad rather than the fries, cost benefit. If you're going to brush your teeth tonight, is it worth getting out of bed if you already laid down? 
flossing. I mean, these are cost-benefit analyses. Just trying to bring this into your world. Okay, Um, my world. There's a cost. Okay, so all that kind of trivial stuff aside, listen, this is the ultimate cost-benefit. There is cost, no doubt. Self-denial is always a sort of death, right? When it comes to the cost of following Jesus, we can't soft-pedal it. We've got to count the cost. But listen, the gain. Jesus doesn't stop at verse 34. He goes on. Whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, I don't want you to lose your life. Because I love you. Because I know what's best for you. He goes on. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. I want you to save it in the truest sense and for eternity. He keeps reasoning with our souls. He doesn't say, deny yourself because I said so. He gives us reason, gracious reason, after gracious reason, after gracious reason to convince us that the gain is worth the pain because you are going to do cost-benefit analyses all the time. This is how we live by faith, is seeing the promise that is so much superior. It's like the treasure hidden in the field. Walk, ding. Oh, what is that? Un- unearth the treasure. And then he goes and looks up the deed. This, this land is worth $300,000. I got to sell everything if I'm going to buy this field. But what's in the box? $50 billion. Is it a sacrifice to go sell everything at the pawn shop? No, you're like, woohoo, can't wait, you know? The gain, we've got to fix our eyes on the gain. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You can't give anything in return for your soul. You can be Jeff Bezos rich or Elon Musk rich or whoever's, you know, top of the heap right now. Can't take any of it with you. You can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. And whatever that success we can run after, like, you know, a dog chasing his tail, maybe that's more kind of realistic for you and me. What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, do you want to align yourself? You want allegiance with this adulterous, fickle generation that one day loves you, the next day hates you? Or do you want to put your chips completely over on the Jesus square? He will always be faithful to you. Because if you're going to be ashamed of me in this life, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, that's a test of faith, trusting him. So, listen, all this self-denial is, is really Jesus saying, I want you to put to death everything that's killing you. Selfishness. Pride. Lust. Covetousness. Grumbling. Complaint. Irritability, bitterness, unrighteous anger, lying, manipulation. Like, it's not a loss to put that stuff to death. The headwaters of all sin and brokenness and dysfunction is the self at the center, not trusting God and turning away to some other gain, supposed better gain. And that's a lie. It's a lie as old as the garden. God wants us to give our life 
and to, I'm sorry, let me say that again. God wants to give us life, true life. And to give us life, he must give us himself. And we can't receive him if we're full of ourselves. So we give up ourselves to receive him. And once we receive him, we realize he's actually seeking to give us our truest and most real selves. See, God doesn't need us. He doesn't want to use us. He doesn't have to exploit us or anything like that. We do not get the short end of the stick here. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us true and eternal life. So when we die to ourselves and receive him, we actually gain not only him, but also our truest selves. And this isn't just a once and done. This is every day. Luke's account in chapter 9 says, deny yourself daily. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. So the, the decisive like turning from sin, trusting in Jesus that is dying to the old way of life, trusting in Jesus, that's the beginning of the path, but it's also the daily rhythm of the path as well. So following Jesus is always a smaller no for a bigger yes. It's never a bigger no for a smaller yes. Listen, do you realize how important that is on a daily basis? Why do we sin? Why do we, like, not go with God? Is because we believe the opposite. This is the fight of faith. Like, this isn't something we're just going to feel like, haven't you guys gotten this figured out yet? You know? This is, do you see how you can preach to your own soul? Do you see how we can encourage each other by reminding each other of the greatness of the gain? How trustworthy and good our God and Savior is and all of what he wants to give us that is so much more than what he wants us to give up. He is no fool, Jim Elliot's credo. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Which means the call of this passage, again, is trust me. Trust me. Trust me. So listen, we resist, we wiggle away. Just very practically, think about the stuff that the temptations that typically get you, the, the repeated sins, the substitute, you know, kind of refuges and comforts and, you know, functional saviors that you follow after, that I follow after. We act like Jesus is a killer that we need to run from. And actually, he is a killer. He wants to kill everything that's killing you. And the flesh is like, I'll die, I'll die, we'll die, you'll die, we'll die, we'll die. Well, yeah. <laughs> Jesus is seeking to kill everything that's killing us. We just need to trust him. He will kill our flesh. It's so much a part of us that it feels like we're going to die. No, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but the life I, the new I, live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why Paul says things like Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the gain, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Don't feel sorry for me in order that I may gain Christ. Or Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So C.S. Lewis said it so well, memorably. A lot of you might recognize this quote. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the self-denial that Jesus is calling us to is always for our ultimate good and freedom and life and joy. Fourth implication. This one's quick. Following Jesus not only means deny yourself, take up your cross, you know, death, but also resurrection and life. So we follow Jesus in the pattern of his dying, but also in his rising. Suffering is not only Jesus' destiny. Okay, it's ours. But the resurrection was also his destiny. And resurrection also follows for us, those who embrace self-denial and death. So obviously at conversion, we are made alive together with Christ and saved by grace, but also we will be exalted one day. We may be, we may be shamed and humiliated and marginalized in this world because you know people who follow Jesus are freaks and weird and whatever, but one day we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That is honor and commendation that just makes any, any frown that we experience on this earth a flea bite in comparison. Finally, fifth, though again, there's plenty more to ponder. We need to learn the rhythm of the Christian life, okay? And I've kind of alluded to this already, and really this point is just gonna be another long quote, so sorry if uh, you don't like it, but it's, I think this one's really helpful. The rhythm is dying to live, dying to live, dying to live. That's our daily rhythm. Repenting and believing is like breathing for a Christian. Exhaling sin, selfishness, self at the center, self-determination. Inhaling grace and the promises of our benevolent, suffering Savior, Lord Jesus. Mortification, vivification, yes. Okay, so here's the quote, Cornelius Plantiga, and then we're gonna sing a song and be finished. He writes this, Cornelius Plantiga used to be the president of Calvin Theological Seminary. I don't know if he still is or not. Anyway. Everybody wants liberty. 
The problem is that everybody wants it on his own terms. But salvation doesn't work that way. God doesn't save people from slavery, from addiction, from sin and shame, and then cut them loose to do what they want. Because without the guidance of God, doing what we want is a recipe for falling right back into slavery. So to prevent a relapse, God preserves those who die and rise with Christ in baptism. So that's a picture. That's the beginning, right? How? The Spirit of God empowers believers to, quote, keep the rhythm going where dying and rising are concerned. Yielding to the Spirit of God, a believer seeks the death of her old self and the resurrection of her new self. That is, she puts her arrogance to death and raises her humility to life. She puts envy to death and raises gratitude to life. She puts rage to death and raises gentleness to life. When she breaks this good rhythm for a time, she confesses her sins, which is another form of dying because it kills us to admit we were in the wrong. What's wonderful is that when a person goes through the little death of confession to imitate Jesus' big death at Golgotha, she also rises toward new life, like Jesus walking out of his tomb. Confession of sin is an enormously freeing thing to do. Once reformed, a Christian life needs continual reformation. Even our reforms need reforming, and especially when we grow proud of them or despairing of them. And the central rhythm of reform is dying and rising with Christ, practiced over and over till it becomes a way of being. Take compassion as an example of dying and rising. A compassionate Christian feels distressed at another's suffering and wants to relieve it. His willingness to, quote, weep with those who weep represents the death of scorn. He made his own bed, let him lie in it. And the death of aloofness. Why should I care about people tortured by a military dictator in some country I can't even pronounce? Compassion represents the death of our old self with its emotional stinginess and the birth of our new self with its emotional generosity. The compassionate person unites with Jesus Christ in losing his life to find it by getting out of his shell and into the full range of the world's joys and sorrows. So as the musicians come on up here, ultimately, listen, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to lose but dross. And we have everything to gain. And when we follow Jesus like that, it literally changes everything because it moves into every nook and cranny of life and we can live fearlessly like this is aspirational don't you want to head in this direction none of us have this figured out but we want to head in this direction living fearlessly following our suffering dying rising savior in fact if we count everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing jesus christ as our lord then christ is going to be magnified in our bodies whether we live or whether we die because to live is Christ and to die is gain so we're going to close with Jesus I my cross of taken which is taken right from this text so let's sing that song as an appropriate response to this passage <laughs>